meeting with Thelma and Rhonda. That's a blessing any time. Well, we have uh, Children's Church. Miss Melanie has gotten up to take them. So if we have any kiddos second grade and below, uh, you can meet Miss Melanie right back there in the back. We can just kind of imagine Miss Thelma at the piano. Thank you very much, Melanie, for stepping up and doing that this morning since uh, Miss Tina is not here. First Peter is where we'll be at. First Peter, continuing on in our look at this great epistle. Uh, I have been feeling led to preach this book starting back in the summertime, and uh, it kind of got confirmed. I didn't realize there's a lot of... A lot of pastors out there actually preaching through this book right now and uh, was talking to a guy actually he's the guy who's gonna be coming and preaching our spring revival in April he's preaching through this book and I was discussing with him I had no idea he was preaching through it and he said he went to a conference in Jacksonville Florida and they preached through that book as well so evidently God has a message of hope he wants his church to hear right now and I think that's a message we can always stand to hear about is the message of hope well, we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 14 this morning. I was thinking about when I was a kid, when I was in high school, that is, not so much a kid, but when I was in high school, I played football. And every week before the game, our, our coaches would want us to get off by ourselves, kind of seclude ourselves, and would want us to really focus on how we plan to play the game. And I would often have my headphones on. Back then, we had Walkmans, you know, with tape players and, and anyway and I would have some Christian music in there that I would be listening to and and essentially what they wanted us to do was they wanted to just kind of they wanted us to just kind of to, to chill out and to just get our minds right that's essentially why I, 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 I entitled this sermon get our minds right meaning that we get our focus on the task that was at hand the team we were about to play, uh, our particular assignments in that game, and, and our positions and whatnot. And they knew that we needed that time to really zero in and focus our minds in the task that was at hand because we were teenage boys. And teenage boys have a lot of things on their minds. They have a lot of things. I mean, they've got class. They've got extracurricular activities they're thinking about. They knew we were thinking about girls. In fact, they were constantly telling us to stop thinking about girls. In fact, if you messed up during practice, it would be something like this. Gibbons, why'd you mess up? You think about some girl? Well, think about that girl while you're running laps for messing up the play or whatever punishment, because she can't save you from this punishment, something of that nature. And so they were constantly shouting at us to, to, to get ourselves focused in. And I understand now that what they wanted for me, what they wanted for us was to concentrate to zero in long enough to recognize the moment that we were in and to give our full mental efforts towards that task. Because where our mental and our heart efforts go is usually where our physical efforts go as well. And it's hard to zero in if your mind is scattered all over the place. In our scripture this morning, Peter gives us a call to action. It is a call for us to be getting our minds right, preparing it for the task that is at hand. Let's take a moment and read our scripture, verses 13 through 14, 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope 
fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance. We can just pause a moment for prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for its Holy Spirit inspiration. Lord, we thank you that it says so much to us. Lord, that it can change us from the inside out. Lord, I pray now that you would get me out of the way, get our distractions out of the way, get us out of the way, and Lord, let us pay full attention to what you are trying to speak to us this morning. And let us not leave this place the same way that we walked in. And it is in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, in this scripture, and really the section of scripture goes a lot longer, uh, but I just wanted to zero into these two verses this week, and specifically verse 13, because there's a lot for us to think about. The first thing that I want us to think about is that very first word of verse 13, therefore. Therefore, it's, it's a simple word. We use it in our language most of the time. There's an old funny saying that preachers like to say. It goes something like this. When you read through the Bible and see the word therefore, you need to ask the question, what is it there for? Therefore. Actually, anytime we see that word therefore, we must understand that our English language, it is a transition word. It serves to help us see the consequences of the preceding statements. It's almost like a conclusion. In verses 1 through 12, Peter makes several very important statements. Therefore, this is what we need to do in light of those statements. Therefore, because of that, we need to spend some time reviewing what Peter said in verses 1 through 12. See, I just used the word therefore in my sermon. Anyway, so let's look back at verses 1 through 12 and think about what we talked about last week under the subject of finding hope. Very quickly, because this world is so full of trouble and heartache, and because we as human beings live in this world, we also have sometimes lives full of troubles and heartaches. And we might be led to ask the question, is there any hope? And the answer is a resounding yes. What we looked at in verses 1 through 12 is that we had three reasons to have hope. The first one is God's election of us. And we see his election by the fact that we even get to hear the message of salvation. And then we also see his election in the very uh, circumstances and what he does to move us in the direction of choosing him as our Lord and Savior. That's his election on our life. Number two, we can have hope because of his security of our salvation. We are guarded. It literally says that we are guarded by the hand of God. Our salvation cannot be taken away, not because of us, but because of the very hand of God that guards it. And not only that, but that our inheritance, our inheritance will never fade away. It will never perish. Gold will perish. Gold, one of the most precious things in the world, will perish, but our our inheritance will never perish ever perish and then finally that we can know our faith is authentic because God tests it he puts it through the fire and by putting it through the fire the testing of our faith shows itself to be authentic and we can have a great hope in that very fact so yes there is much to hope in therefore since we have these reasons to hope Peter then gives us in this next section of scripture three commands starting in verse 13 And then we're going to look at this week and next week. These are these three commands. The first one is, rest your hope fully. We see that in verse 13, and that's what we're going to look at today. The second command is, be holy in all your conduct in verse 15. We'll look at that next week. 
And then verse, the third one is, conduct yourselves to fear, or in fear, conduct yourselves in fear, and that's in verse 17. Now, you might make the argument, Pastor, it seems that there are more than just these three commands in this section of Scripture. But in the Greek language, remember, we're reading it in the English, but this was translated from the Greek language, these three verbs, to rest our hope, to be holy, and to conduct ourselves, are what we call a second-person imperative verb, meaning there is an implied, this is what you need to do. So when we read through this scripture, these are the only three verses, or the only three verbs in this section of scripture that say, because of what you've just read, this is what you need to do. The rest of those that seem like commands are actually what we'll call participles or secondary commands, and we're going to get to that in just a second. This morning, I, I only want to look at that first command, that we rest our hope fully in Him. And, and what I would call the subcommands of this command, and like I said, I'll get to that. Specifically in verse 13, the command in full is that we rest our hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And other versions actually state that we should set our hope, that we should fix our hope, not rest. And I only emphasize what those other versions say because this is actually a very active verb. It emphasizes that there is something for us to do, not just sitting around and, and resting in, the, in, in essentially what that means. Now last week I told you about this hope, that it has, it has a future tense sense to it. Hope is our faith in the future. The Bible teaches faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So if you want lasting hope, you need to be sure to put your faith, your hope, into something that will last, into and beyond what you know to be the future, something that will not fade away and something that is sure. What Peter spent the first 12 verses doing was laying the groundwork for our hope and this command for us to rest our hope, to set our hope, to fix our hope. And while I broke the first 12 verses into three points of why you should hope, remember that first 12 verses, three reasons why we can have hope, really they can be summarized into one word, grace. That's it. That, that, that really, that's it. We have hope because he elected us. That's his grace. He didn't elect us because there's something special about you or me. It's because of his grace. His security and the guarding of our salvation, that has nothing to do with us. My salvation isn't secure because of my strength. It has, sal it has security because of his strength. That has nothing to do with me. That's his grace. And even the testing of my faith, which may seem not very grace-filled at the time, it's after the moment, in hindsight, when we see how he carried us through that test that we're able to say, all right, I didn't make it through that test on my own. He carried me through it. And that in itself is grace. And so grace is how I would sum up the reason that we have hope. And we survive all this and we think about this fact that he has invested so much grace in us. And so here in verse 13, we are told what God wants us to do in response to his gracious salvation is hope. You get the 
I don't know if intense absurdity is the right word that I'm thinking here, but you know, when somebody does something for you, don't you want to respond by doing something really wonderful and magnificent to him, to them? Right? Don't, don't you want to just, well, they helped you out fixing something at your house, and so you're like, how can I help you? I, I know I know how to fix meals. Can I fix you a meal? Or when I was a youth pastor years ago, this elderly lady called me up. She said, I'm trying to get my computer to work right, and I'm having this issue. Can you come over and help me? I said, yes, absolutely, ma'am. And so I went over to her house, and I spent about an hour and a half getting everything to work right. And when I was done, she said, well, well Brother Brian, can I pay you? And I said, no, absolutely not. She said, well, can I bake you a pie? Oh, yes, you can. I'll take a pie. I won't take money, but I'll take a pie. We want to respond by doing something great and magnificent, but God says, I don't need that. I just want you to put your hope in me. Fully put your hope. God does not want us to do some hard work. The response God wants for us to have to his gracious salvation is that we fully hope in the grace, in his grace to come. Because the grace we have experienced is merely a foretaste of what is to come. Did you get that? Verses 1 through 12, the grace we've experienced, that's only a foretaste. That's only a foretaste of the grace that is to come. Because that's why he says, put your hope in the future grace there in verse 13. We experience his grace every single day. We do. That breath you took was actually a gift of God's grace. The fact that you got up and got dressed and came here is a gift of God's grace. But the fulfillment of our salvation and His grace occurs at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's why He says that we need to put our hope at the revel at the, in the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what does He mean by that exactly? Revelation means appearing. This is talking about the appearing of Jesus Christ. Now, some commentaries and some pastors will make the argument that this is talking about our final judgment where all of creation will stand before Jesus Christ and he'll say either you've been covered by the blood and you're saved and you can enter into heaven and, and then he will then extend grace to us, the wonderful amount of grace. Or if you haven't believed in him as Lord and Jesus Christ, then you will be sent to hell. It could be talking about that or it could be talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. I lean towards the latter. Because most of the New Testament apostles always lived and looked forward to and, and exhorted the people to live as if Jesus would come back at any moment. I believe Jesus could come back at any moment. Do you believe Jesus could come back at any moment? If you do believe that, then what Peter is exhorting us to do is live with your, your hope fully upon this grace that you will receive in his second coming because it could happen at any moment. It could happen at any moment moment. Either way, whatever that revelation may be, what we are being told is, is that at that revelation, here is what we can look forward to. Grace. I don't exactly know what that means. It could be the rewards of heaven. It could just be receiving the promise of salvation and eternity in heaven. It, it could be just being in his presence. I'm not sure. But when you consider all the grace that we have received up until this point, and that it is merely a foretaste of the grace to come, I cannot fathom what this grace will be like. 
what the grace will be like that I receive at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But we can and we should put our hope fully in this grace to come. One day we will stand before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords for judgment. And at that moment we will realize this. We have absolutely no right to even stand before Him. That we do not deserve His love, we do not deserve His mercy, much less any bit of grace. But if we have in this life made confession of our sinfulness, if we have made confession of our need for Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, grace is exactly what we will receive. I don't understand why, but that's what grace is all about. He will once again extend grace and we will receive a great inheritance of heaven. I like how the King James puts it. It says that we should hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you. That's so beautiful. It makes me pause and say, who am I that the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of heaven and earth would bring me anything? Much less grace. I'm nothing. I'm nothing compared to him. And this is why Peter makes this statement for us to hope on this future grace. But he doesn't just say hope. He says hope fully. That's an adverb. Emphasizing the, the importance of this verb that we put our hope in him. Because he knows, like my coaches knew, that we have a lot of distractions and what verse 13 contains is two particulars or secondary commands that imply this title, get your mind right. What, what I mean is, is they, they are secondary commands to help us with the primary command, that is to put my hope fully in the grace to come. I call them secondary commands because while they seem like verbs, they are actually describing the manner in which we are to conduct this command to hope fully in the grace that will come. Now, if you are a parent... I'm going to explain this in a way that I believe you will understand when I say a secondary command which defines the manner in which you perform the primary command. If you tell your kids to go take a bath, that's the primary command. But you may have to tell them this, I want you to go into the bathroom, shut the door, turn on the water, take off your clothes, get into the water. Use soap, wash your body and your hair, wash all the soap off, turn off the water, dry your body completely, put on clean clothes, for goodness sake. That's those secondary commands that define the manner in which you want your kids to take a bath. Now, it's not that Peter thinks that we're kids, but he knows that the way in which we put our hope in Jesus will affect not just our future, but our present reality. In other words, it will not just affect how we put our hope in our future grace, but it will affect how we live in the present reality of the grace we need day to day. The way we hope in God's promise of future grace affects the way we presently live. And so these two secondary commands are, gird up your loins of your mind and be sober, be sober-minded. Let's look at that first one. Gird up the loins of your mind. And I can almost imagine there being a little chuckle as this letter is being read to the different congregations throughout the provinces. 
gird up the loins of your mind because what he is doing is he is using uh, an illustration about clothing. You see, back then, men wore tunics. And a tunic was basically like a long robe. Now, a tunic is real comfortable if you're just lounging around. But if you've got to do some work, if you've got to run, if you've got to climb a tree, if you've got to chop wood or anything like that, tunics are kind of difficult to use. If you've got to fight, you know, in a battle. And so what they would do is when they were preparing for strenuous activity is they would literally reach down and grab the backside of that tunic. They would pull it up in front of them and then tie it up within their belt. They didn't have belts with a belt buckle necessarily, but they did have some leather straps and whatnot like not that. And so they would tie it up into that belt girding up the loins of their tunics. And so now they're ready for act activity. Now they're ready to run. They're ready to fight. They're ready to uh, get into their strenuous activity. And so you can almost imagine them envisioning this when Peter uses this word, gird up the loins of your mind. They're thinking, what? What, what are you talking about? And, and we can understand this why, you know, some of our translations actually say prepare your mind for action. Now, why would Peter say this? Well, again, thinking about my football days, thinking about coaches, thinking about any activity you might have been in, our minds are constantly being distracted. They're all over the place. They're distracted by worries. They're distracted by our jobs. They're distracted by troubles. They're distracted by family. They're distracted by temptations. We get to thinking about yesterday, thinking about interactions we had with this person or that person thinking about things we said, things we wish we hadn't said, things we wish we would have said. Or we think about tomorrow. What's tomorrow going to be like? What's three weeks from tomorrow going to be like? What's a year from tomorrow going to be like? And so we are so distracted by all of these thoughts going through our mind. And the Lord understands this. And Peter understands this. And so he says, before he says, I want you to put your hope fully, he says, prepare for action. Prepare your mind, that is. Gird up the loins of your mind. Tie up the loose ends. If we want to hope fully on God's coming grace, we have to do the hard work of rejecting the hindrances and distractions of the world and instead focus our minds on the things of God. Every morning, once my wife and kids leave for school, I have a little time for myself, and I like to spend those first moments by myself in prayer. I'm not trying to seem holy. This is, I'm going someplace with this. And my time in prayer usually goes something like this. Father, I pray that you give me a softness this morning. Ooh, speaking of softness, we're out of fabric softener. Anybody else like that? I am so easily distracted. My mind just wanders all over the place, and I have to do the hard work of tying up those loose ends and concentrating on what the task is at hand. And the task right here is, I need to put my hope fully in this future grace. Well, how exactly do we gird up our minds and stay sober when this world offers us so many distractions? This subcommand to gird up the loins of our minds sounds like something that Paul speaks about in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, when he's talking about putting on the spiritual armor. And he talks about girding up yourself with the belt of truth. You know what the belt of truth is? Jesus said to the Father, your word is truth. There I'm going to it again. You want to gird up the loins of your mind? You must fill it up with this as much as you possibly can. 
It's amazing how much you can fill your mind up with just 15 minutes a day of spending time in God's Word. You feel distracted all of the time? Combat those distractions with the Word of God. I mean, if every time you got distracted by fabric softener or the kids' basketball practice or whatever it might be, if you just said, Lord, I need to gird up the loins of my mind right now. Praying this in Jesus' name. Praying Scripture in Jesus' name. Start quoting Scripture to yourself about that. Here's the second secondary command. He says, be sober. And again, this might have elicited some real chuckles from those listening, as it still might today as we think about getting drunk in the church. But he's not talking about a literal sobering. He is talking about being sober in our minds. But consider the spiritual implications when someone is intoxicated. When someone is intoxicated, their thinking is hazy. Their mind is blurred. All reality is distorted. That's why they say that drinking and doing drugs is an escape from reality. People who are intoxicated usually go one of two ways. Either everything is way better than reality is when they're drunk, when they're intoxicated, or the opposite direction, everything is way worse than in reality. Either way, physical intoxication is an escape from that reality. And so it is spiritually speaking. We are not sober when we allow things of this world to invade our minds and take us from our reality. Now, you might think that's a good thing, to be taken away from your reality. But if my reality is that the grace of Jesus Christ, which I do not deserve whatsoever, has so affected my life, do I really want to escape that reality? I don't. Do I want circumstances? Do I want the things of this world to spiritually intoxicate me to a point that I think things are better or even worse than they really are. Now, some of you know about this. When my wife and I are trying to decide on where we're going to vacation, she will always choose the beach, and I will always choose the mountains, someplace nice and cool. Now, it's kind of a little joke, and I don't mind going to the beach. In fact, most of our trips are, end up going to the beach because I'm a loving husband. I thought she might amen that. Anyway. I don't like going to the beach for a couple of reasons. Number one, it's because I've seen there are things in the water that I don't really want to swim with, okay? And so it's just a, it's a, it is, it's a fear thing. I've seen too many nature shows and sharknadoes or whatever it is, and, and I just don't want to be in the water. But what's in the water doesn't cause me concern nearly as much as what is on the beach. You see, when you go to the beach, generally there are women in scantily clad bathing suits, skimpily dressed. And I just don't like looking at that. It's a real spiritual battle for me, and she knows about that. And, and uh, I, I tend to just look at them, the kids and my wife, and, and keep my, myself focused. Now, it's not that my concern is that going to the beach is going to somehow uh, catapult, me, uh, catapult me into uh, committing the grievous sin of infidelity against my wife. My concern is actually several levels before that. You see, it's through the mind, it's through the eyes, through the senses that we can take just a little bitty glimpse, a little sip of this world, and it begins to affect our thinking in huge ways. 
and we begin to create scenarios. We begin to imagine. We, we begin to fantasize or, or even create an alternate reality. The things of this world want to intoxicate you away from the reality of Jesus Christ. And you may be saying, well, Pastor, I don't really deal with women in scantily clad uh, uh, bathing suits. Well, that's absolutely wonderful. I am glad for you. But if it's not that, then it's probably something else. It could be alcohol itself. It, it could be worries. It could be gossip. It could be soap operas. Ooh, am I stepping on some toes? I know some of you ladies like to watch your stories. How about you men too sometimes? Thanks, Kenneth. Romance novels, overeating, things that we take just a little sip of, and before you know it, we're just completely intoxicated. If you talk to an alcoholic, most of them will tell you they started with a single sip. And here's what happens is whatever we might allow to come into our lives, into our minds, they will compete for our affections and our thoughts that are supposed to be devoted to hoping fully on His grace. And it only serves to diminish our passion and our thirst for more and more of God in His grace and hoping fully in Him. The distractions of this world don't just entice us for our pleasures, but they diminish the hope we should be fully putting into the grace of God. If hope is our faith in the future, then these distractions diminish my future faith in God. I don't want that. I don't want my hope being diminished by anything. Not my hope in God. And you don't want it either. This world has much to offer us. And we need to be wary of its attempts to allure us to finding ways to pleasing ourselves for the sake of self. We need to be wary of this because our flesh and the enemy will try to lure us away for our own sinful, fleshly, selfish desires. This is why the apostle includes this warning in verse 14 that we not conform ourselves to the former lusts as in our ignorance. You see, before Christ, we sinned for various reasons. And one of those reasons were we just did not know better. And this call to hope fully in the grace of Jesus is to leave behind those old ways of putting any kind of stock in what the world offers us. Here's what it is. It's a call to sanctification. A call to making ourselves more and more like Christ every day. To being made more like Jesus and less like our pre-Jesus days. You see, before salvation, I hoped in all sorts of things. I still struggle with that old fleshly way, but my goal is to put my hope fully in the grace of Jesus Christ and the grace of Jesus Christ to come. Before we lived in the moment and for the moment, now that we've been saved, we should live fully in His grace and the grace to come. Here's what I'm really saying. It's all about Jesus. It needs to be all about Jesus. And if it isn't all about Jesus, then we are not fully hoping in His grace. Now you might say, but pastor, that's too hard. That's too, that's too extreme. I've got grandkids and I love them and I, I'm hoping in their future. You know, that's fine as long as you take it from the right angle. Their future 
your grandchildren, they're all a part of God's grace on your life. And when you begin to see as every good thing in your life is a grace of God, a gift of His grace on your life, then you start putting your focus back on Him instead of all these other things that we might be tempted to label of us. And not only that, but think of the great spiritual legacy that you grandparent could pass down by showing your grandkids what it looks like to hope fully in the grace of God to come. Well, so now what? Our church mission statement is loving God, loving people, serving the world. And I truly want us as a church to be doing this. I want us to be loving God. But if there is anything that is in my mind that is devoted to anything outside of God, if there's anything that my hope is in besides God, then there is no way that I am truly loving God with all my heart, all my mind, all my soul, all my spirit, have all my strength, whichever translation you want to use. And this is the great concern of God in this scripture, that we not be half-hearted hopers. Half-hearted hopers are not hoping fully in the grace to come. But that we gird our minds with the hope-producing truth of God's Word and that we not drink in the hope-diminishing distractions that this world has to offer us. And as much as this is reflective and it's about my personal relationship with Jesus Christ, it is also a group thing. You see, my hope in Jesus can spur you in your hope in Jesus. And your hope in Jesus can spur me in my hope in Jesus. My hope in temporal things is something perhaps you need to keep me accountable on. Church, Jesus is coming again. He is coming again. I don't know when, and neither do we, neither do you, neither did Peter. But he is coming again. And my hope is that the grace that I will receive in his glorious and wonderful revelation... That's it. That's my hope. It's in his glorious grace and his revelation. Peter says in verse 8, Though you do not see him, that is Christ, you love him. You love him. You love him. But I can only imagine how that love will be unbounded when we finally see him. But when he sees us, will he see us fully putting our hope in his grace to come? I hope he does hope he does. So let us live every moment and every day with our minds fixed on this hope, keeping ourselves spiritually sober. And as Psalm 42:11 instructs us, let us hope in God. Let us hope in God. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? I wonder if you are looking forward to that coming revelation of Jesus Christ. I look forward to it with hope, and I also look forward to it in reverence, but I do not look forward to it in fear. And if you are looking at the second coming of Christ or standing before his throne in heaven, however you want to translate that scripture, if you're looking towards that with fear, it may mean you've never truly put your life in the hands of Jesus Christ. It may be that you've never chosen 
to surrender your life to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I want to encourage you this morning to do that. I want, I want you to, before you can hope fully in the grace to come, I want you to understand you need to put your faith fully in the grace of here and now. During this time of invitation, we want to invite you to come forward and talk to Jesus about that salvation. Talk to me, talk to Kenneth. My wife is up here as well. She'll be happy to talk to you. Maybe there's something else on your heart. We want to invite you to spend this time in prayer. If you need to talk to me, then I'll be up here as well. And We want to invite you to come forward during this time of invitation. Time of responding to God's Word and His Holy Spirit that may be tugging on your heart in some way. God loves you. He loves you so much. He sent His Son to die on a cross so that you could be saved, so that we could be saved. And that was a gift of His grace. And I can only imagine the grace that is to come. And I want you, I want everyone in this room to experience that grace too. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for your presence. Lord, we call upon you not as some sort of superstitious thing, but because we realize and we recognize that we are desperately in need of you impacting us. We are desperately in need of you coming in and speaking to us. We are desperately in need of you of convicting us of how we need to change. Father, I pray that you would have your way with every single one of us here this morning. It's in your name I pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.